Welcome back to The Hemingway List, the podcast where we do things the Hemingway. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 3. This is a sad book. And why is everyone so nasty to Philip? Uh, J.P. Guthrie said, I can't help but think that Emma's promises about visiting him in the country won't be kept. Although she obviously seems genuinely upset about the situation, her own life and need for employment will probably prevent it from happening, poor Philip. And I think it goes without saying that aunt and uncle aren't going to be particularly successful in their roles as mother and father. They definitely feel obligated rather than compassionate. I'm expecting Philip to find some happiness in nature, though. He remembers the garden more than his aunt and uncle in previous visits. And I kind of hope there's a bit of an uplifting contrast from these bleak first chapters. Fix the Blue says, agreed, it doesn't bode well for poor Philip. He has seen a lot of heartache already in his short life. Yeah, I really hope it, that it's just a bad start to a good life. And Philip's all all good in the end. <laughs> That's my hope, at least. It's, uh, um, I don't know, like, yeah, it's so sad. The saddest thing in this chapter for me was probably him trying to choose the one item to remember his mother by. Um, well, he had to choose one for each parent, but um, it focused more on the mother. And oh, that was just, oh, it's so sad. <laughs> Why is this book so sad? And like that, that um, feeling of the kind of rushedness that he had to, like he couldn't even think of an item and then he chose I think oh what was it in the end something that she liked a clock that she liked um but then I was thinking like but then once everything else is gone and sold I would you'd have this feeling of buyer's remorse almost of like oh why did I choose this like there was this obvious other thing I, I can't believe it didn't occur to me to take that thing you know I imagine that would be what would happen down the road and it broke my poor little heart. Fix the Blue said, Philip with his mama's dresses. Oh, right in the feels. His uncle doesn't seem like he will be a kind, involved caregiver. caregiver. He definitely doesn't give me good vibes so far. He seems very money-driven and kind of lazy. That's the impression I got, impression I got from the quote below anyway. I can't speak properly recently. What the hell's going on? Mr. Carey was unused to work and he turned to his correspondence with resentment. Yeah, I, mean, I feel that too. And then I started to hope, oh, what if we're wrong? And the one thing that gave me hope is that he didn't like Phil's mother, right? And I thought, well, we don't know anything about Philip's mother. So what if, what if she was the asshole? All right, hear me out here. This is just me clutching at straws. But what if she was the shitty person and the uncle and auntie are good people and the reason that they're not so keen about Philip and Philip's mother is because Philip's mother wasn't a great person. So, you know what I mean? You know what I Maybe, maybe, maybe. Probably not, but maybe. Um... Outreach said it's hard to know how money-driven he is without knowing what his money situation is. 
He could be pretty skint himself. I know I was extremely conscious of money when I was living below the poverty line. I don't think we can infer too much about his finances yet. I'm hardly an expert on Vickers' pay. But from other fictional books, it seems like Vickers can be quite wealthy and quite shabby depending on the parish. All their social standing, inheritance, connections, etc. I guess we'll find out about Mr. Carey's pretty soon. I am Norwegian says, This new living situation seems terrible for Philip. After a few short minutes, the uncle is starting to feel resentment. Yeah. But maybe he's just feeling anxious and nervous, you know, not resentment. Maybe he's coming across as resentful because he's so... He's, he's overly concerned about the money situation, but that could be just genuine care, you know? Could be, hopefully. Probably not, but I'm I'm, clutch, I'm clutching at straws because I don't want Philip to be now, after this all this terrible stuff that's happened, for him to turn up, end up in a terrible household. Wishful thinking, or devil's advocacy is what I'm exercising here. Acoustic Eel says, I couldn't help but laugh when Philip said, I want Emma to come with me, and Mr. Carey responded, it costs too much money, Philip. That's so not something that would make me feel better in that situation. A nine-year-old might not know about money, probably wouldn't know what Emma, that Emma is pay, getting paid to be his nurse. I'd maybe tell the child, Miss Emma has to go away and help another boy now, but she loves you and she will miss you very much. Don't talk to the kid about money, geez, especially right after that, when he sort of this is Philip's father for not leaving very much money behind. The man's dead. Rude. <laughs> yeah, but also, he is nine. Like, this novel is making nine seem really young. Like, it feels like when they talk about Philip, it's like a toddler, you know, like a four or five, maybe, who doesn't really understand what's going on. But for those of you with a nine-year-old kid, or if you teach kids or, you know, are familiar with kids <laughs> nine the kids that are nine are pretty savvy like they know what money is they know you know they would a nine-year-old would know that their nurse is getting paid i think they would be able to understand that for the most part but it's the way this book is putting it it makes it seem like philip is really naive and young um swim said the mama fish said edit Per the podcast, I have revised this post to remove the surname we dare not speak of. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> I'm glad to see my ban. And now that you mentioned that, no one else has used the surname that we do not speak um, so far. So maybe my ban has worked. Wow. I do have authority. Uh, it's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that the author based the book on his own life. The author is writing of himself, which for me makes this book more affecting. That's true. Well, I guess Philip does turn out all right in the end, although his surname does suck. Of course, it is not wholly autobiographical. Per Wikipedia, the author was the fourth of six sons born in his family. Their father, Robert Ormond, surname that has been banned per and edict, was a lawyer who handed the legal affairs of the British Embassy in Paris. Since French law, I like this rule, since French law declared that all children born on French soil could be conscripted for military service, his father arranged for the author to be born at the embassy, diplo diplomatically considered British soil. The author's mother, Edith Mary, Nee Snell, what? Oh, 
contracted tuberculosis, a condition for which her physician prescribed childbirth. Wow. Wow, okay. She had the author several years after the last of the three elder brothers were born. By the time he was three, his elder brothers were all away at boarding school. Edith's sixth and final son died on 25th January 1882. On one day after his birth, it was the author's eighth birthday. Edith died of tuberculosis six days later on the 31st of January, the age of 41. The early death of his mother left the author traumatised. He kept his mother's photograph at his bedside for the rest of his life. That's so sad. Two years after Edith's death, the author's father died in France of cancer. The author was sent back to the UK to be cared for by his paternal uncle, Henry MacDonald, band surname, the vicar of Whitestable in Kent. <laughs> uh, that's not funny in itself. I'm just laughing, I'm laughing at the band surname thing, not that his uncle um, adopted him. <laughs> Acoustic Eel says, You missed a spot in the last paragraph. Don't want to violate the Ander Edict. <laughs> Really hits me how the story mirrors certain parts of Somerset's life. Just mentioning that it was a cold January afternoon and then seeing that his actual mum and brother died in January. Chills. Interesting that it was born on the grounds at the British Embassy as a draft-dodging measure. I love hearing about little legal loopholes like that. <laughs> Simply Productive says, The Ander Edict. I can't stop laughing. Ander says Simply Productive. That's me. Not me. Not, I'm Ander. Not, <laughs> you know what I mean. Ander. I nearly died. Literally nearly died. When you imitated my pronunciation of the last name that shall not be named. You sounded like you were bloody choking to death. I am laughing as I type this. My lungs are screaming fire. My throat feels like I shoved a cheese grater down it. And generally speaking, my kittens are concerned for my well-being. Judging by their plaintive meows and the fact that one of them is getting in my face and putting his paw on me as if to say, are you all right? If you ever get a following a la Games Grumps where people animate every funny bit from your podcasts, this would surely make the top 10. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're amused by that bloody surname. And I'm also really glad that my banning of the surname seems to have taken effect. The Ander Edict. I like that. It's got a nice ring to it. One of my first questions reading this chapter... Oh, wait, I skipped a bit. In answer to why people are nasty to fill up, I'm going to assume it has to do with how children were viewed differently at the time. Children are now a treasure, supposedly. Then, children were a nuisance. One of my first questions regarding this chapter is whether Mrs. Carey, the aunt, is upset at her, her inability to have children and if she will love Philip immediately, or if she is bitter about her life and will hate him, or if she was never predisposed to children at all and will hate him. I'm hoping that she will love him and dote upon him, even causing a rift with her husband, because poor Philip deserves a bit of a break, but I can't imagine this will be the case. If it's um, evil step-parents... If that's the road we're going down, this is going to be very Roald Dahl, Lemony Snicket's type territory, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, let's, let's proceed and let's find out. 
think is the only thing to do from here. Chapter 4 goes like this. Philip parted from Emma with tears, but the journey to Blackstable amused him, and when they arrived, he was resigned and cheerful. Blackstable was 60 miles from London, giving their luggage to a porter. Mr. Carey set out to walk from Philip with Philip to the vicarage. It took them little more than five minutes, and when they reached it, Philip suddenly remembered the gate. It was red and five-barred, and it swung both ways on easy hinges, and it was possible, though forbidden, to swing backwards and forwards on it. They walked through the garden to the front door. This was only used by visitors and on Sundays and on special occasions, as when the vicar went up to London or came back. The traffic of the house took place through a side door, and there was a back door as well for the gardener and for beggars and tramps. It was a fairly large house of yellow brick, with a red roof, built about five and twenty years before in an ecclesiastical style. The front door was like a church porch and the drawing room windows were gothic. Mrs Carey, knowing by what train they were coming, waited in the drawing room and listened for the click of the gate. When she heard it, she went to the door. There's Aunt Louisa, said Mr Carey, when he saw her, run and give her a kiss. Philip started to run, awkwardly trailing his club foot, and then stopped. Mrs Carey was a little shriveled woman of the same age as her husband, with a face of extraordinarily filled with deep wrinkles and pale blue eyes. Her grey hair was arranged in ringlets, according to the fashion of her youth. She wore a black dress, and her only ornament was a gold chain, from which hung a cross. She had a shy manner and a gentle voice. "'Did you walk?' William, she said, almost reproachfully, as she kissed her husband. I didn't think of it, he answered, with a glance at his nephew. It didn't hurt you to walk, Philip, did it? she asked the child. No, I always walk. He was a little surprised at their conversation. Aunt Louisa told him to come in, and they entered the hall. It was paved with red and yellow tiles, on which alternately were a Greek cross and the Lamb of God. An imposing staircase led out of the hall. It was of polished pine, with a peculiar smell, and had been put in because fortunately, when the church was reseated, even enough wood remained over. The balusters were decorated with emblems of the four evangelists. I've had the stove lighted as I thought you'd be cold after your journey, said Mrs Carey. It was a large black stove that stood in the hall and was only lighted as if It was only lighted if the weather was very bad and the vicar had a cold. It was not lighted if Mrs. Carey had a cold. Coal was expensive. Besides, Mary Ann, that maid, didn't like fires all over the place. If they wanted all them fires, they must keep a second girl. In the winter, Mr. and Mrs. Carey lived in the dining room so that one fire should do, and in the summer they could not get out of the habit, so the drawing room was used only by Mr. Carey on Sunday afternoons for his nap. But every Saturday, he had a fire in the study so that he could write his sermon. Aunt Louisa took Philip upstairs and showed him into a tiny bedroom that looked out on the drive. Immediately, in front of the window, was a large tree, which Philip remembered now because the branches were so low that it was possible to climb quite high up it. "'A small room for a small boy,' said Mrs. Carey. "'You won't be frightened at sleeping alone. Oh, no.' On his first visit to the vicarage, he had come with his nurse, 
and Mrs. Carey had had little to do with him. She looked at him now with some uncertainty. Can you wash your own hands, or shall I wash them for you? I can wash myself, he answered firmly. Well, I shall look at them when you come down to tea, said Mrs. Carey. She knew nothing about children. After it was settled that Philip should come down to Blackstable, Mrs. Carey had thought much how she should treat him. She was anxious to do her duty, but now he was there, she found herself just as shy of him as he was of her. She hoped he would not be noisy and rough, because her husband did not like rough and noisy boys. Mrs. Carey had an excuse to leave Philip alone, but in a moment came back and knocked at the door. She asked him, without coming in, if he could pour out the water himself. Then she went downstairs and rang the bell for tea. The dining room, large and well-proportioned, had windows on two sides of it, with heavy, heavy curtains of red rep. There was a big table in the middle, and at one end an imposing mahogany sideboard with a looking-glass in it. In one corner stood a harmonium. On each side of the fireplace were chairs covered in stamped leather, each with an anti-macassar. One had arms and was called the husband, and the other had none and was called the wife. Mrs. Carey never sat in the armchair. She said she preferred a chair that was not too comfortable. There was always a lot to do, and if her chair had had arms, she might not be so ready to leave it. Mr. Carey was making up the fire when Philip came in, and he pointed out to his nephew that there were two pokers. One was large and bright, and polished and unused, and was called the vicar, and the other, which was much smaller and had evidently passed through many fires, was called the curate. "'What are we waiting for?' said Mr. Carey. "'I told Mary Ann to make you an egg. I thought you'd be hungry after your journey.' Mrs. Carey thought the journey from London to Blackstable very tiring. She seldom travelled herself, for the living was only three hundred a year, and when her husband wanted a holiday, since there was not money for two, he went by himself. He was very fond of church congress, and usually managed to go up to London once a year, and was, and once he had been to Paris for the exhibition, and two or three times to Switzerland. Marianne brought in the egg and they sat down. The chair was much too low for Philip and for a moment neither Mr. Carey nor his wife knew what to do. "'I'll put some books under him,' said Marianne. She took from the top of the harmonium a large Bible and the prayer book from which the vicar was accustomed to read prayers and put them on Philip's chair. "'Oh, William, he can't sit on the Bible,' said Mrs. Carey, in a shocked tone. "'Couldn't you get him some books out of the study?' Mr. Carey considered the question for an instant. "'I don't think it matters this once if you put the prayer book on the top.' Marianne, he said, the book of common prayer is the composition of men like ourselves. It has no claim to divine authorship. I hadn't thought of that, William, said Aunt Louisa. Philip perched himself on the books, and the vicar, having said grace, cut the top off his egg. There, he said, handing it to Philip, you can eat my top if you like. Philip would have liked an egg to himself, but he was not offered one, so took what he could. "'How have the chickens been laying since I went away?' asked the vicar. "'Oh, they've been dreadful. Only one or two a day.' "'How did you like that top, Philip?' asked his uncle. "'Very much, thank you. "'You shall have another one on Sunday afternoon.' "'Mr. Carey always had a boiled egg at tea on Sunday, "'so that he might be fortified for the evening service.' 
All right, there we go. There's another chapter done. Jeez, that's something to look forward to for next Sunday. The top of a boiled egg. <laughs> Poor Philip. God. All right, have your say over at the subreddit. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow.